Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. In this episode, we're talking to Dr. Olivia Aguilar, who is a director of the Miller-Worley Center for the Environment and an associate professor of environmental studies at Mount Holyoke College. Dr. Aguilar's teaching focus examines the intersection between environmental education, community, race, and inclusivity. In our conversation, she shares her experiences as a woman of color who chose a tenure path in academia. She also shares her stories of how she overcame the challenges of being a first-generation college student to achieve her professional goals. I'm extremely grateful for Dr. Aguilar sharing her perspective because it's the truth for so many. I hope you find her story to be inspiring just as I did. So let's get into it. You have a unique background in terms of you're a woman of color and you've chosen to make a living out of environmental education. How did you begin that journey? What was your earliest memory that you could remember of you being inspired by the natural environment and what sparked you to believe that environmental education is the way to change the world in yeah. a small way? Yeah, that's a good question. So so I don't know that I have an earliest memory of something that sparked my interest in the environment, but certainly as I'm doing my own research now and asking people to think about their earliest memories outdoors, I can think of times that I loved. Very enjoyable moments in my youth involved being outdoors, mostly with cousins or with my dad or with my grandmothers doing, you know, just whatever. Being in the garden with my grandmothers, playing, you know, through the yards around my grandmother's house with my cousins or just sitting on the back porch with my dad are just very fond and very like vivid memories that I have growing up. And so I think that I'm a first-generation college student. I think that's coming up later, but there was not a lot of guidance in terms of what to do with a college degree. I knew I wanted to go to college. I mean, that was foregone conclusion for me. And I don't know, I don't know that it was for the rest of my family members, but I knew I wanted to go to college. And because there wasn't really much guidance in terms of what to do with that, my family thought I should either be a doctor or a lawyer. That's what you do if you're going to go to college. And I knew I didn't want to be a doctor because I hated my science classes growing up. I just hated them. Especially, I remember like dissecting a heart, a, a pig's heart and just being totally grossed out by that in sixth grade. I think it was traumatic for me, actually. I don't um, know why they do that. I don't either. It's just... I, I went to school in Kenya and it was a vegetarian school. <laughs> but when we did have an opportunity to dissect an animal, it was a frog. But because it was a predominantly vegetarian universe or high school, a lot of the students protested yeah. animal cruelty. Yeah. And I was like, yes, we don't have to do this anymore. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why. We also did a frog at some point too. And both of the, I just, it was just not enjoyable for me. So I never wanted to be in medical field or be a doctor. And this gets to sort of my path. I never really thought I would ever be in the sciences. 
So, okay, I guess I'll be a lawyer is what I thought when I went to school. And there wasn't really a law program at the university I went to. So I decided to major in political science, really having no idea what that was. Mm -hmm. It just sounded like, oh, if I do this, I can be a lawyer. So my first two semesters, I really struggled with it. And I don't know, I I don't know the reasons why, but I just remember my sophomore year thinking, okay, this is not what I'm going to do. And again, not having any guidance, I had no clue what to do with the degree. And so I really started thinking about what do I enjoy? And that's when sort of the memories of my of the things that meant the most to me started to come up. And I really enjoyed being outdoors, spending time with my grandparents outdoors. So there was a summer that I worked, it might've been that summer, I worked at a nursery, like a, like a mid-sized plant nursery. And I loved it. I mean, I just loved it. I loved being outside every day and working with plants. And so when I came back, to college and tried to figure it out. I was like, well, what could I do with plants? And luckily my college had a very good horticulture program. So I went to their office and I started looking through like binders of jobs. We literally had binders of jobs. I don't think they do that anymore, no. but yeah. <laughs> um, it's called Indeed yeah, or Google. Yeah. <laughs> right. Something. So I was looking through binders of jobs you could get if you were a horticulture major. And I remember seeing one, had to, I, I can't remember the specific job, but it was something like, being outdoors with kids and parks and forest. And I just thought that sounded awesome. So I I decided to major in horticulture. And then because I decided so late in my sort of college trajectory to major in horticulture, I had to get a bunch of basics in really quickly. Um, and because I was registering late, a lot of like the courses that were sort of the easier courses were filled. So I had to end up taking a lot of difficult natural science courses. And I had already sort of... So that was the one obstacle because I thought to myself, maybe I shouldn't do this because I didn't think I was good at science. I didn't want to be involved in the sciences, but I was going to have to take... Oh, I can't even remember which biology class it was, but like I think molecular bio... Regular chemistry, which I hated in high school, organic chemistry, genetics, plant physiology. I mean, like all of these science courses. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And so I thought, oh my gosh, I might, you know, I might not be able to do this. But at that point, I was convinced that it was something I really wanted to do. So I took the classes and I did fairly well in those classes, which was surprising to me because I just did not think. And so I'm going to use this term, even though I'll tell you now why I hate the term, but I did not think at the time that I was like a science person, right? Anyway, took the classes. It was fine. Loved the major. Still didn't really know what to do with it. So I ended up getting my master's in horticulture as well. And I thought I was going to do landscape design. Then I started getting really interested in children's gardens. And there was something in me that just kept recognizing the fact that why didn't I know I was good at science? And I think that always sort of bothered me. But then I recognized that it took this passion for like the environment and for being outdoors that led me to sort of jump into the sciences. And I don't even know if it was like seeing the sciences through a new lens, but just being open to what I had to learn from the sciences to do things that I wanted to do. And I think also like being at a big school, not having people have, not having instructors have a particular idea of what I could accomplish or not. And it just really got me interested in education generally and how the impact of schools, the impact of teachers on student learning, the impact of curriculum on student learning. And so I really started to put together, I think, at that time, 
my interest in the sciences and in the environment and in education and particularly in multicultural education sort of all started to come together probably during my master's. So after my master's, I taught for a little bit. Same thing, I was teaching in classrooms and just saw how poor the resources were for students and how that negatively impacted students. So I decided to get my PhD to study it more. And I don't even know if I'm answering your question, but all of this goes to why environmental education. I just saw in myself this own passion, I think, for the environment lead to passion for the sciences. And and there's a lot of talk about how students of color aren't interested in sciences or how we need more students of color in STEM. And so I thought this like environmental education might be a a really important and missing piece Mm -hmm. to that. Yeah. So one of the things that that struck me as you were talking about your journey through building your, I guess, formal knowledge in in the environmental sciences is that you didn't really have any guidance. And for me as a first gen in this country and the first in my family to have chosen environmental studies as a profession, I had similar conversations with my dad as well, who was like, how are you going to feed your family? Or how are you going to be profitable? Where are you going to get jobs from? Because we grew up in Kenya and at that time it wasn't really a profession. Mm-hmm. It was something that you were just kind of, I guess it, it was like a hobby mm-hmm. in a sense, but I couldn't see it that way. And then coming to the U.S., it was a whole new system. And I think what really was a blessing for me is I went to a liberal arts school. Mm. It was small Mm -hmm. and it had a great environmental program and we had mentors, Mm. our professors. We were assigned to mentors who were professors. Mm -hmm. And luckily I had a mentor who had a lot of international experience working on environmental issues, environmental education. And so that professor, Professor Ormsby, was sort of my my guide into Mm -hmm. this world of creating something. But it was also helpful having conversations with, there weren't many students of color in the environmental program. Right. So I'm just wondering, was there any support system, like Mm. even like in a minuscule way, Mm -hmm. like conversation with other students who were taking similar courses Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. class? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so as a student, are you asking that? Yeah, Yeah. so I would say that I really lucked out in terms of the graduate program I picked because it was just a really supportive cohort that I was around, which I desperately needed because I don't think that I had the mentorship from, you know, faculty per se, but I just had a really supportive group of peers. like colleagues, yeah, peers at the time that it wasn't, you know, you hear about these like horror stories about like competitive PhD programs and it was not like that at all. And I think a big part of that was it was very interdisciplinary. So we all had different projects we were working on and it was probably also the, the personality of the people too, which I'm really thankful for. It was just much more supportive than it was competitive but I had to, you know, I would hear, oh, somebody's applying for NSF. I, like, I had no idea what that was. I had to like, figure out what an NSF grant was, you know. And then by the time I figured it out, it would be too late for me to apply. So I always sort of felt a step behind. And that was never easy. But again, I just didn't, it wasn't super competitive and people were very supportive. And I think you have to, for a first-gen student, my guess is that we're all pro- probably really resourceful. Like, and figuring out, it's sort of a hustle. Like, how am I going to survive this? 
and finding like crazy grants to apply to and there are even grants to apply yeah, to <laughs> if there are at that yeah. so at the time yeah you know, I was really and also like I think one of your questions you know later on is like what is the advice I mean I had a particular idea there's always a sort of sense of justice behind my work that I'm interested in like also in terms of jobs my dad would same thing like there's what are you going to do how are you going to make money and he'd always tell me about like, oh, I know this com- you know, this guy who works for, I don't know, Exxon or something. You can be an environmental consultant. And I was like, that's not why I chose this field. Like no, I'm not interested work in working, right, and working with Exxon or Shell or whoever it was at the time that he would always tell me that. He's like, oh, you can make really good money. And I was like, that's not why I'm doing this. So I think there's always been that sort of piece of it. And when I started my research agenda, I knew I wanted to work in South Texas because it's where my family's from. And I felt like there was a lot of issues that I could address there. Even though I had like my advisor and other people were were doing international work and that was sort of sexy and everybody wanted to go international and do international work. I wanted to do my my work in South Texas. So there wasn't a lot of competition from anybody doing work in South Texas. And I found a grant that would give you a stipend, a very small stipend. But also if you wanted to, you could live at their like center. It was in the middle of nowhere, Texas. When I tell you middle of nowhere, it was literally on a wildlife refuge in the middle of nowhere. That's so cool. <laughs> so I lived there because if Grant wouldn't, I mean, there was no way I could pay for rent and have any money for living expenses off the grant. So I lived in the middle of nowhere and took this grant and that's what helped me finish my PhD. So I think like having really good peers that are supportive and have you know being resourceful and then also just like really if you can really have a clear vision of what you're trying to do i think it just really helps you to figure out what to tap into instead of trying to tap into everything and and then figuring it out and so like knowing i wanted to do that research in south texas and then finding you know that was really probably also lucky fortunate for me too but that helped mm-hmm. and then i did have a few professors that were just again really supportive and i was thoughtful and intentional in asking those professors to be on my committee versus I think sometimes people might make this mistake of just getting like big names on their committee. And I don't think that that's always helpful. I think you need to make sure you have cheerleaders and and support people on your committee because otherwise they might not be that invested or interested in seeing you succeed. Right. Yeah. And, and so, having people who share your vision or who understand your who understand vision. understand your vision. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So that was key, like finding the right committee members was key. Otherwise, oh my gosh, I don't know how long it would have taken to finish. So there's this element of trying to figure out what your vision is, but there's also the element of you being a woman of color in a profession that is predominantly white. Mm -hmm. Did you face any challenges in that? And if so, how did you overcome them? Yeah, I mean, this is a difficult question because I think, yes. But also it's like, I don't know what the other experience is. I mean, I faced so many challenges. That's true. You know, so there's not, it's a, it's a hard question to answer. And, but I think, you know, some of the things I just pointed out, just making, trying to find cheerleaders to support you. There's going to be plenty of people, plenty of people telling you, you cannot do it. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough, whatever. So you really have to find and maybe that's the big obstacle for women of color and, and a big reason why we have that imposter syndrome because we hear it so much that it's hard to, once we're finally successful, to feel like, oh, this is actually because of because I am smart, because I can do this, and not because somebody 
you know, gave me whatever. So I think, yeah, there's plenty of people that are going to tell you you can't do this. So finding people that believe that you can and that support you, I think is key because you're going to need that little boost, you know, sometimes. So that's one way, finding really good mentors. I mean, I, people will be like, oh, you need mentors. When I came, so this is like another level, when I came onto the tenure track position, I literally, I had a mentor for research. I had a mentor for teaching. I had a mentor for my service. I had, a, I mean, I got every type of mentor I could get because, because I knew I didn't know stuff, you know? And I think the other challenge of being a person of color is there is a normative way of being in particular institutions and if that's not how you're used to being, you get into a place and you're like, oh, like when am I supposed to speak up? You know, when is it okay for me to start, you know, expressing whatever? And and it's different at different places. And if you don't understand that that culture, it can be a harsh reality to sort of do something and people are like, well, why did you do it that way? And you're like, well, this is how I thought I should do it. Right. So I think that's the other really big challenge is sort of <laughs> having to figure out the culture of places. And again, if you if you have mentors that understand that, it's huge because they'll help you navigate the politics or the culture of a place. So that was helpful. And then one other piece that I would say I'm, I'm thinking about now because I see it as a problem for some people is, is being vulnerable and saying, I need help is really important because a lot of people will come into this and they don't want to admit that. And then they don't get the mentorship they need. And it will probably likely be a lot more difficult if you don't get that mentorship. But I see that happen, especially actually with men of color, I would say. And I imagine it's hard to say, I need help, right? But when you don't, and then you don't seek the mentorship that you need because people don't think you need help because you're going through it and you're not saying that you do. Yeah, and you're a man and men are supposed to have everything under control. and Right, and then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, what happened? Because you didn't know, you know, such and such. So I think being able to say, I need help, I don't know everything, I need mentors is really important. I mean, it stinks because you don't want to say that stuff, but I don't know how else you survive. Yeah, I think it's just, um, for me at least, it was finding that safe zone or safe right. space with somebody that I was building a relationship yes. with, where yeah. at, at a point I would feel like, okay, I think this person really understands where I'm coming from yeah. and I respect them and think that they're they're good people, that they're genuine. So right. that's, I think at that point is when I would open myself up a little bit more to kind of how I wanted help from them. Yep. In certain situations, I would just ask them outright, would you be my mentor? Yeah, right. <laughs> and it was up to them if they wanted yes. to be that or not. Right. But yes, I think for me, I've been really lucky enough to have women who have been willing to be my mentors yep. and not only professionally, but also personally. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that those relationships have sort of like grown or evolved from just talking about the professional stuff to personal because Mm -hmm. part of mentoring is your personal life affects your professional life and vice versa, right? right? Right. And to have somebody who has that kind of, I don't know, wisdom and insight, it has been just kind of phenomenal for for me in a lot of ways. And I think you just 
if you're lucky enough, you'll get mentors along the way mm-hmm. of your life mm-hmm. as you grow. And I was just wondering, like you as a professor, mm-hmm. you get to mentor students. So, you know, what's your philosophy of mm-hmm. mentorship? I like that question because I don't think, I think when we seek mentors, we don't think about that sometimes. Like what kind of characteristics do you want? And what I would say, what I want and what I try to be is as honest as possible. Because I think to myself, would I have gone the PhD route if I had had really honest guidance from people? And at that point, again, I still didn't really have, I didn't know anybody, I don't think, who had gotten their PhD. And so I was just relying on people that I didn't know very well to tell me if I should do this crazy thing or not, right? <laughs> yeah, it's and, part of commitment. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know that I would have done it if I had, if people were really honest about how difficult it was. Obviously, I'm happy I did and I love where I'm at now, but but it was a really hard journey. And so what I try, I try to be as honest as possible with my students about what they're going to experience or, or, or what they might experience, I should say, and about the process. And yeah, I mean, that's... Because I think also with honesty becomes trust. I just think those things are hand in hand. And I just think that that is key to building strong mentorship relationships. Mm-hmm. Um. One of the things I wanted to talk to you more about is your your research interests. Mm-hmm. And those have also changed as you've gotten tenure. Mm-hmm. You've uh, sort of had an opportunity to spread your wings. And I really like your research because it looks at the human dimensions science of humans interacting with the natural environment and using an interdisciplinary approach to understanding our environmental problems. and then how a better understanding of human psyche can help us become better advocates for the environment. Mm -hmm. And I was just hoping that you could tell us a little bit more about that because I think it's fascinating. Sure. My research, sure. So, I mean, I would say this too. I didn't, because I think one of the important things you bring up is that I didn't start this until after I received tenure. And I don't think that I, I don't think that I would have been brave enough to do it prior to getting tenure. I think some people are brave enough to do the work they want to do immediately, but I just wasn't, I didn't feel like, I didn't feel like a lot of people would get it. I didn't feel like my field was ready for it. I didn't feel like my department would fully understand it. And so I waited till I had tenure. And then also I think I had the time in my sabbatical after tenure to really just sort of sit and explore different methodologies. I just have always felt like the methodologies were presented in the sciences are so constricting. And even if you want to just say, oh, qualitative, like it's just very, the way we look at things is very constricting in terms of first, let's do this and then we'll find this and then, you know, this. So I think having that time during my sabbatical to sort of explore interesting ways that people of color were really trying to express themselves and their research was really important to me. And so I really got into a lot of Black feminist literature, Latinx methodologies. And it's really resonated with me a lot more. And so I think, again, because I had tenure and I had been in my field for so long, I could start being a little bit more open with, with my critique of the field itself. And then also exploring sort of these things that I wanted to do. So all of that said, then I started really questioning how are we framing what it means to be environmental? How are we framing what it means to be an environmentalist? 
you know, why was there ever this sort of literature that abounded about people of color not being interested in the environment? So I had these big critical questions that I was interested in. And and there's been now, I think, a lot of really well-written pieces on that. Carolyn Finney's work is really important to me. Um, Lorette Savoy's work is really important. Bell Hooks, I'm reading them and the literature finally started resonating with me. And so I felt like, okay, people are talking about this now. But I think that there's there's obviously a lot of gaps still to be uncovered. So I found sort of a little area within this specific to Latinx and looking at how do we frame our own vision or interpretation of what it means to be sort of environmental. And so I'm starting with one group that is people involved with Latino Outdoors, the organization Latino Outdoors. And so they are either volunteers with or work with Latino Outdoors and spend a lot of time outdoors. And the question for me is, so a lot of people of color don't consider themselves environmentalists. I I think that that's out there in the literature enough now because there's this sort of negative connotation with the term environmentalist that is associated with sort of a white middle-class persona, I suppose. And so, but yet people of color are very interested in the environment, care deeply about environmental issues. And so I'm really, so I really started recognizing it's just how the field itself, which is predominantly white, was framing what it meant to be environmental. And and so I want to deconstruct that, but I want to deconstruct it through the voice and the words of people of color. And so I'm taking, I'm collecting oral histories and personal narratives from Latinx people in the environment to sort of reframe what it means for us to be environmental and enjoying the outdoors. That's really interesting. And are you finding, I would imagine you'd find a, a change in or a difference in perspectives by generation? Yes, that generation is different, but also because generation can vary depending on like how, which generation is, has migrated. Mm-hmm. So it's the, it's the difference, and maybe less so in generation and more whose parents were here, whose grandparents were here versus whose have migrated from, you know, or immigrated from a different place. Mm-hmm. And that's a really interesting difference in perspective. It's circumstantial mm-hmm. in a sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. So I recently watched the movie of like in the, the underground. Harriet Tubman. Yes. Yeah, Harriet Tubman. Right, right. I loved that yeah, movie because for me, there were so many environmental yes, themes, right? right. Mm-hmm. All over the place. Mm-hmm. And it just got me wanting to read about what is the connection between like African-American history mm-hmm. and the community and the environment. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of the articles that I read were talking about how you know, when, when the African-Americans were were enslaved, mm-hmm. um, they were really, for, for them at that point, they were very much sort of embedded in nature. Mm-hmm, right. And they were getting a lot of their signs from nature, in a sense. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not being very articulate about it, but it was just what we saw in the movie mm-hmm. when she was in the forest. And singing to them, let my people go. I think there was something just so uh, symbolic of that where nature is kind of calling you home. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it's this person who's calling to liberate you. Mm -hmm. And for them, looking into the forest was sort of a natural instinct in a sense, right? Because you get your answers from nature. Yeah. And 
the fact that the community at that time, their lifeline was really the land that they were born and raised on and to understand the landscapes that that they were now part of is is something that you know a lot of us will today will think that people of color or african americans are sort of separate from that mm-hmm, right, now right. but a lot of their history is kind of rooted in environmental in some sort of environmentalism or connection to nature as a source of like their living and being yeah and I, i'm cautious to romanticize any of that Oh, right. yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, like I, I certainly think, <laughs> right, exactly. And so I think the circumstantial part that you said at the beginning is really important because, you know, a lot of in my interviews, again, it'll, you know, if somebody's parents have just immigrated, they are, it's a lot harder for their parents to understand why being in, out, in outdoors and, and doing, let's say like leading hikes or camps or whatever is a path to a job you know, because they'll be like, it was so when I, when we were outdoors, we were working or we were in the fields or we were trying to get over here, you know, surviving really. And so there is this sort of different understanding, but I think what's, and this is sort of, I think behind your point is that we all have this connection to the land in different ways. It's not the same for sure, but in some ways, all of our ancestors, I think, have understood or had had to work with or had to live with the land in different ways. And I think, I think what I'm finding is so important. And we talked about the importance of interdisciplinary. This so what's so important to our understanding of these issues is history, is people's history. Mm-hmm. And that's been really fascinating as I do this work, thinking about different people's histories. And even when I was just traveling and I was in Chile. I mean, the park is run by Chileans. You know, this national park that's visited by tourists all over the world is run by Chileans. More than half the people that were hiking and camping there were brown and spoke Spanish. So to then be in the United States and be like, oh, people of color aren't, you know, doing this stuff. It's like, it's just a, it's just a myth. And in some ways, I'm trying to figure out why this myth was created and who created this myth. I mean, I think we have a good idea of, of how and why, but but further exploring, you know, how did it become this sort of widespread myth, right? When right. you can just sort of look at other countries and see that yeah. the, you know the global and the global majority is is outside, right? So I remember when I was in college, we learned about why communities of color may be less able to access natural spaces is because of economic factors. Mm. But that was 10, 15 years Mm. ago when I was Mm -hmm. doing my degree. And I don't know if that's changed. Is Were these spaces created as a way to, well, want to protect them, but also make it difficult to access? And so then if you are a family of, if you're from a community of color and you happen to be economically disenfranchised, then for you as an individual or a community, it would make it more difficult for you to go into these natural spaces. Mm-hmm. Right. Is that something that you still find in your research? Yeah. I mean, I think, again, when you look at the history, what I, I find it fascinating that 
parks were discriminatory, mm-hmm. pools were discriminatory. I mean, all of these outdoor recreation places that that were essentially cheap right. were discriminatory. Right. Had, had discriminatory practices. Maybe we're discriminating. I'm maybe not using that right term right, but practice discriminatory practices, right, or policies and. And so I think over time, then when you start to not see people of color at the pools or people of color at the beaches or people of color at the parks because of these policies that didn't make it easy for, for us to visit or, or essentially excluded us from visiting, right. then that's where this myth right, begins. Like, yeah, oh, they're not care. interested yeah. in coming to the beach or they're not interested in coming to the pool or they're not interested in, in coming to the park. And then, oh, because they're not interested, well, let's just hire white people that look like the people that are coming. And and then you don't attend to people that aren't coming because you think they're not interested, right? So I think that's this, this whole system that's really created, again, this sort of myth and this fallacy about who, who enjoys the outdoors. And then I think in some ways, because it became so difficult for people of color, it was sort of bought, like well, that's not where we belong, right? We don't belong there. We don't ever see people like us there. We're not wanted there. And yeah, and I think it created a really troubling cycle to the so that when, you know, we are in more urban landscapes and there's less of that, we then becomes more of a process to get to bigger and greener spaces. I don't think it means that we're not outdoors because I'm a high, I'm a total believer that being outdoors means being outside of a building. And I think we spend a lot of time outdoors, whether it's like the front porch or the stoop or the local park. I think we spend a lot of time outdoors. But in terms of like recreation, you know, that's away from the home, I think we were excluded from that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think speaking to your point about urban landscapes, research has shown that low-income neighborhoods are have less green spaces and it's shown to impact their mental and spiritual health right. more. Right. So I, I totally agree with you in terms of what really the research shows is that there's been sort of this systematic denial in a sense of access to natural spaces right. for those who are economically disenfranchised, but also racially and that's kind of like the history of a lot of places in the U.S. But mm-hmm. I'm glad that you are unfolding that for us <laughs> <laughs> and that you're putting some data behind it to say, hey, no, we really do care and that we have a role to play in environmental conservation. So we're almost reaching the end here of mm-hmm. our interview. And there are a couple of, well, maybe like five questions that I want to ask you, mm-hmm. including our, our lightning round. Okay. Hopefully you didn't get to those questions. Okay. Yeah, hopefully not. But what do you wish you had known before you you started on this journey to into like environmental studies and education rather? I mean, I, I don't, I feel like when you're an academic, like the exploration part is a key part of it. So in terms of like knowledge of stuff like that, I don't know anything, but in terms of the PhD process, I, I wish I would have known how political it was and how much geez, personality and fit make a difference in your ability to succeed at places versus your skill set and your knowledge. I mean, it's sort of crazy. Yeah. I wish I, that's the PhD process and, and the tenure process. The tenure process, I think is, I wish I would have known about the tenure process for sure. But it's a, now that I have tenure, I can say it's a good you know, I've had two sabbaticals. It's a good life. It's a good life. <laughs> I love my research. 
I love teaching. So it's not, it's good. Yeah. You work a lot too. I would say like, you think, oh, I have a break and I'm, you know, I have the summer. I mean, it's, you work a lot. Yeah. I think that's the misconception of, of academia is people think that when school is out, the teachers are out and the professors are out and yeah. they don't have anything to do and they're just going on vacation. I think that's students think true. that yeah. of us. I think students think like once we're out of the classroom, like we must just be hanging out at our house or whatever. And <laughs> yeah. Having cocktail parties. Yeah, I, don't, I don't think they realize the amount of work that goes into preparing a class and grading. And grading is my least favorite part of the job. It's brutal. And and then also how harsh students can be on evaluations. That's that's a that was a total surprise, and it's a big, it's a big thing that professors of color talk about. The evaluations, yeah, student evaluations. Interesting. Yeah. Tell me more about that. Just the bias behind them and how effective they really are at at helping improve teaching mm. versus just being a source for student complaints and bias to come out. And in a way, and in some schools, they are very heavily relied upon for tenure promotion process. Right. And, you know, the question is, are they, are they even fair? Mm-hmm. I think it's a big question out there. And, and not only that, but they're just demoralizing. So you go through this process that's already, I tell people like the process of, of getting a PhD and then going through the tenure process, it's just one of constant rejection, like constant. And so are, you're already dealing with rejections from papers and rejections from, I don't know. Then, but then you add that, the student evaluation that is research has shown women of color are most partially evaluated. Mm. And it's just a really tough process. Right. And then how do you, well, I don't want to go too much into the rabbit hole with this, yeah. but it's, it's interesting to me because I've never heard of that. Mm-hmm. Not to say that it isn't true, I just don't have any familiarity with it, but mm. it doesn't surprise me at the same time. If we know that there's research that says that women of color professors are more likely to receive biased feedback on their student evals, is that something that administration takes into consideration? It depends on the administration. Right. And I think more and more administrations are probably looking at it. Because there are now instances of lawsuits. Mm. So that always gets administration's attention. (laughs) And so I think at least where I'm at, the advisory committee is very aware of the situation and they, you know, supposedly read literature on it so that they're aware of that as they take the evaluations into consideration. But, you know, it's like who is looking over whose shoulder, making sure they're reading the literature and they know this stuff and that they're, you know, on on board with, you know, the understanding of this issue. So I think it's a known thing for a lot of institutions and to what extent they actually do something about it or reflect on it or care about it. I don't know. Mm, Interesting. Mm -hmm. We'll switch topics here and kind of talk more about the advice that you would offer for other environmental professionals who who want to make a change in their field of study. Mm. What advice would you give them? I think stay true to yourself and your journey. And I would say that I, I'm, as I'm saying this, I'm thinking of women of color that I know who have tried this field and have been, have received so much pushback that they sometimes leave the field in different ways or, or start their own thing, start consulting or starting doing, you know, other things. So it's not, what I would just say is it's not, everybody has a different role. 
right? And I have stayed in the institution. I mean, Carolyn Finney actually, out of, I was at a talk that she was giving and she left and she was like, you can do work outside of the institution, which I strongly believe that you can. And sometimes that might even be stronger if you're speaking out and you know, speaking truth to power, that's really important. If you can stay in and do it too, I think that's also really important. Mm-hmm. So I just think everybody has a different role to play. And if you if you stay true to your sort of vision and what you care about, you can probably carve it out. But so I just read somewhere from, I think somebody had posted something. Sometimes it's easy to try to be performative to succeed because again, you don't know the culture, you don't know the norms. And you're like, what do I need to do to succeed here? But then at some point, like you're real truth has to come out. Mm -hmm. And if people are surprised by that, you're going to get a lot of pushback. But if they know who you are from day one, then that's who you are. And they are either going to accept you and work with you in that way, or they're not. And then you can find the people in the institution that are willing to work with you, given sort of how you are and what you care about. And I think more and more institutions are open to working with different types of people, which is really key. But yeah, I would just say like staying true to that vision and that and that sort of truth of yourself and then finding the people that are willing to work with you on that versus trying to fit into something that you might not feel comfortable with doing, you know, or don't love. I've definitely been in a situation where I was trying to fit in mm-hmm. and that really just, I think it creates more self-doubt. And I think it also, from my own experience, it kind of just eroded my own kind of truth to power. And then when you kind of get out of that situation, it for me, it felt like I was having to rebuild myself and rebuild that confidence again. Right, that's tough. And so I just wish that I was truthful from the get-go. Either you like it or you don't. Yeah. I'm not a difficult person, but I'll work with you if you're willing to work with me. Right, exactly. So respect. Um, so I really like that advice. Yeah. What advice would you have for somebody considering a profession in the environment? Mm, same thing. I mean, stay, tr- stay true to yourself. You're not going to make a lot of money. <laughs> like, I, don't, I, don't, I just don't see it as this. I mean, maybe, maybe the money is coming. I don't know. But I, I think, I do think more and more people are interested. And in, I mean, climate change is, is just hitting us in the face. And so I think more and more people are now interested in addressing it, either really addressing it or showing that they're, that they care about it. Either way, I think there's probably going to be jobs, how much money there is behind it. I don't know, but, but certainly probably in the engineering field, my guess is that there's going to be just a plethora of things when you think about environmental solutions. Right. The innovations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think there's going to be a ton there. And so just thinking about you know, what's really important to you. If the cause and the fight is important to you, you're probably not going to make that much money. But if the engineering part of it is, speaks to you, you know, go yeah. for it and do what you can. Yeah. <laughs> you Hopefully know? one day environmentalists will be like the doctors of nature. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I wish. I mean, yeah. I mean, just the, our priorities are, are really messed up. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll go into the lightning round now. And the first question is, what have you read, heard, or watched lately that has influenced you the most? I watch a lot of news. So, and I'm, I watch a lot of news. So I'm constantly influenced by what's happening, I think, on the global scale. But I recently have been like binging on Jane the Virgin, which has mm. been interesting because, again, sort of I take it back to my research and I think about, it's so funny because Jane 
spends a lot of time on her front porch swing with her with her abuelita and her mom, you know? And it's like that, even that sort of scene of being outdoors with your with your family makes it into this like sitcom, telenovela sort of show, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that that's really interesting. And I'm trying to finish Small Great Things. It's a really interesting book. Do you know that book? No. I think it's by Jody Picoult or something. Anyway, I haven't finished it, but that has been on my mind. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? Probably setting goals. I'm a big goal setter, like for the year. And then I have this uh, passion planner. <laughs> oh. Yeah, it's probably like an ad for passion planner or something, <laughs> but it allows you to like do, I don't know, like one year goals, three year goals or something to that effect. Yeah. And honestly, it's it's been pretty helpful because you sort of plan out your like weeks and your months towards each of these goals. Yeah. I mean, can't say I've met them all, but that has been really helpful. So yeah, I try to be goal oriented. I like to check stuff off. So yeah. Like once I have met something, okay, I can check that off. And I've really been trying, it's not a habit yet, but I've really been trying to take care of myself, like my health and my mental health. Yeah, those are probably the okay. two. What's the best piece of advice you've received? Yeah, geez. I don't know on that one. I might have to to pass. (laughs) What is your superpower? That's funny. I think my husband says I have a really good sense of smell. (laughs) (laughs) I can smell things like a mile away. Um, And identify them correctly too. (laughs) Yeah, I'm really good at smell. It's it's sometimes a curse actually. Yeah. (laughs) That might be it. That's probably it. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure it comes to much use when you are hiking in yeah. um, amazing trails like in Chile. Yeah, or when the dog's coming in from a from a hike and I know exactly <laughs> what the smell is and I won't let him in the house. So mm-hmm. Cool. Well, thank you so much again. This has been a great conversation. Good. Um, Thanks. I wish you the best of luck in your your new role. I really hope that you're able to make significant contributions, not only to the university, but beyond that. Because we really do need more people like yourself to kind of just advocate for environmental justice, really, and just representation. Thanks. So thank you. Yeah, I'm excited. (laughs) Thanks so much. I appreciate this. Hey, all Thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.